going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And we're coming at you again with another accredited episode. Yes. So uh, this one's going to be a little bit different, I think, than most of our other accredited, if not all of our accredited episodes. I think so. But uh, Hopefully in a good way. Hopefully. We'll see. Um, but we're going to be discussing the long-debated concept of uh, treating uh blood pressure, you know, either with nighttime dosing or morning time dosing, um, and figuring out whether that's actually impactful of, uh, on a patient's, you know, overall outcomes. Right. Some, uh, relatively new data has come out and was a little bit, through a little bit of a wrench in previous studies that were done. Yep. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be kind of going through that. So for those of you who don't like, you know, looking through different articles as far as, uh, primary literature and whatnot, this may not be your episode. <laughs> But well, no, this is because you don't have to look through it because we're going to talk about it. Because we vaguely looked through it for you. We, yeah, because we glanced at it and now we're <laughs> going to tell you about it. So uh, we're going to be uh, kind of going through some of the old studies that we you know, used to kind of hold and uh, as far as you know, the evidence of, of nighttime dosing and blood pressure medications, at least you know, somewhat. We'll kind of go through some of the older data and we'll go through the new study um, that was published late last year and um, kind of compare and contrast and uh, give our thoughts is if you guys need those and then uh you know we'll go from there it it always makes me feel weird thinking back on those times when i felt like i had a really good recommendation to give because this is one of those things that like it's one of those little pearls that a, mm-hmm. that a pharmacist has when you see somebody who's taking multiple meds and they're on the morning and it's like oh you should dose one of those at bedtime because you know medpec hygia hope whatever um and then we get some data that you know, speaks against it, which there was other data out there yeah. that spoke against it, maybe not as robust. Um, and I'm not saying that it's it's all faulty or anything like that. We're going to suss it out and talk about it. But I hate to think about those instances where I felt very confident and then it's like, oh, well, maybe it didn't actually matter that much. Yeah, that's it's definitely true. I feel like uh, it's one of those things where if I really stopped and thought about some of the stuff I did recommendation-wise, Mike, early on, mm-hmm. um, I probably would... Want to quit. At least it's not because we were misinformed at the time. Right. Like, it's not like we were misunderstanding what was available. It's just that as new things come out, then you adapt. That's a positive spin. Mine, mine, I can think of a couple that mine may have just been (laughs) (laughs) ill-informed. Giving wrong information. (laughs) Yeah. Or just not my my level of understanding of said information, something like that. Now, I don't want to bias your thoughts on what we're about to talk about, because I'm not saying that it's just totally bunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're going to talk about pros and cons of the new trial that came out, which is called the TIME trial, T-I-M-E. Um, which uh, they did a good job. This one, mm-hmm. it's an acronym that stands for treatment in morning versus evening time. Somebody finally got it. They got it. Other right. than the verses they threw in there. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, but you can't can't spell time with a V. But you know, they at they least say. didn't capitalize the V. So. Yeah, that's I, good. You know, they got four out of five. All right, we'll take it. Uh, we're going to kind of compare them in depth to the MAPEC trial, which you may have heard of. Um, it might and, be treatment in the morning or evening instead of verses. Yes. So never mind. I stand corrected. Well, because or that's you know that's way different than verses. True. It's a shorter word. But or unless you abbreviate versus, versus. means comparison. <laughs> or is like eh, either one. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. It might have worked. Anyways, you should have been on the committee. Um, but yeah, we'll compare it to Maypec. That the, we can agree on. The more recent Hygia, um, and that's what we're going to kind of focus on. But there are other. Smaller things out there. Hope references this to mm-hmm. kind of in, in a more hypothetical manner. Um, 
But yeah, I think it's interesting data. So this time came out in October 2022. Maypec is from like 2020. 2020. And then, I'm, May, I'm sorry. No, Maypec is 2010. 2010. IG is, is 2020. Um, so this is all kind of over the past decade. And yeah. I don't know. I learned a lot about, um, it, I'll just a little bit of a high level before we get into uh, kind of the reason why these um, studies are being done. But I did learn a lot about um, the controversy that I was not aware of because I think we talked about Hygie a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Sounds very familiar, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, we definitely did. And we talked about, like, we probably talked about it more recently and when we talked about hypertension and whatnot. Probably so. At least and we I, at least mentioned it in passing. I just don't feel like I was as aware of some of the things that I read about um, today. So, yeah, we'll talk about why those trials are a little bit interesting, too. So, um, but before we jump into it, like, like I said, this episode is accredited for uh, ACPE, uh, continuing education for pharmacists and nurses. So in order to actually get credit for this episode, you have to be an unlimited member at freece.com. And if you have uh, unlimited membership with their website, basically you get all access to all of our episodes that are accredited. And there's quite a few on there now. And after you are done listening to the episode, then you will uh, go to the link in the show notes and it'll take you to a um, post-activity test, just a 10-question multiple choice test. Uh, little quiz, test, whatever you want to call it. And once you blow through that, you'll get your one hour of credit, assuming you passed. Assuming and, you passed. And uh, normally, uh, you know, historically, I should say, we've, we've given the password at this point in the show. However, turns out some of you crafty individuals listen to just enough to get the password and then just go take the test because you're already smart. But... We have we've been we've been requested to put a stop to that. So we are now having a mystery, <laughs> mystery <laughs> password, mystery timestamp on the password embedded in on the actual uh, podcast episode. So you won't know where the password's at. Yeah, so it's um, not as easy as skipping not to as the easy. end either. Right. Unless, yeah. So that's going to be interesting. We'll see how many people complain about that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. It's it's uh, above our heads. But uh, yeah, so we'll we'll give you the password at a later time. I'm, I'm hoping that we will remember to do so, so I don't have to put it in after the fact. But uh, no, we'll we'll give you a password, and then, um, like I said, just make sure afterwards you get you, you go to the website, get your credit. But uh, if you have to be an unlimited member, and if you are not, definitely check out the website anyway and see uh, if it's something you might want to take advantage of. A lot of really good. Uh, learning opportunities on freece.com including live you know live uh, ce's they have uh, monographs that you can read if that's more your style um like the podcast they have mini like ce's that you can get on there for little bite-sized increments instead of like a full hour um lots of good stuff so i'd also um, recommend writing the password down once you hear us say it because since it's not at a specified time stamp then if you forget by the end of the episode it's gonna be mm-hmm. really annoying to go back and find it it so would be just jot it down on your phone once there you, you go it. that's my that's good that's good advice it's good clinical pearl yeah that's our that's our pearl for the day <laughs> there you go so, all right. So we'll jump into it. Um, what do you want to so, start yeah, you, off? You want to talk a little bit about why they're even looking at this and and why we care if we dose at bedtime versus morning. Yeah. So a lot of this kind of came about uh, really with the idea of of a dipper versus non dipper, which I know we have mentioned previously in the podcast. But uh, by definition, a non dipper. Um, well, I should say this: there's not a universally agreed upon definition, but the typical definition that people land on is that a non-dipper blood pressure profile is basically defined as a nocturnal blood pressure that fall of less than 10%. Um, so this definition requires 
further classification clarification is what like a lot of the is this kind of the consensus um, of a lot of the articles that have kind of reviewed this but we've always kind of thought of circadian you know our circadian you know, changes in blood pressure is sort of having a lower blood pressure at night while we're sleeping and you know as over time you know as, as the early morning starts to you know, come about then the blood pressure starts to to go up again so you have this like sort of blood pressure surge and and then throughout the day it's a little bit higher than it would be when you're sleeping and you know with with this idea that some patients don't follow that same circadian rhythm sort of model um, that started getting people looking at this this idea of like well what is is the patients who don't have this decrease in blood pressure uh, overnight is that cause a, a potential problem for any of them right um, and I, I guess the idea is that a normal person who is not a non-dipper their blood pressure would lower greater than 10 percent um, during that period of time and then come back up and I think that you know you might say as we're going through this you might say well you know if there's a chance that they get benefit from doing one of them at bedtime. Well, let's just do that. Like, it's not going to hurt anything. Um, it's mostly true, but there are some concerns. One being that some people um, might be overdippers, uh, and that's kind of uh, uh, specified by having a greater than 20% fall in nighttime, uh, nighttime blood pressure. And that's been associated with an increased risk of MI, um, silent cerebral infarcts, especially in older patients, um, so having your blood pressure go too low uh, can be a negative, um, just just so you're aware. Um, it can also increase risk of falls in elderly patients with nocturia. So if they get up uh, in the middle of the night because they got to go pee, and their blood pressure is low, then they obviously run the risk of passing out. But there's the obvious benefit, which is that with that morning surge of blood pressure, um, statistics show that this is in the early morning hours, that's where a noticeable fraction of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events occur in that morning time when the blood pressure kind of has a bit of a spike um, uh, after it's dipped during the night. Um, so it makes sense that we would want to kind of get a little extra coverage for that period of time to make sure that we're not having any cardiovascular events in those early morning hours. Um, though there's also a theory that if your blood pressure is held too low during the night, then you might have... In, it, you might have an even more drastic rise in blood pressure in those early morning hours than the normal bump that you would have. So there's definitely arguments on both sides, and I think that's why it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah, and there's actually a, uh, an article from the, the Journal of Medicine um, from the Netherlands, and it's uh, titled Causes and Consequences of a Non-Dipping Blood Pressure Profile. Um, so one of the things that the author starts talking about, you know, kind of right from the start, is you know whether when we're looking at these types of studies, do we need to be looking at systolic blood pressure alone? Um, diastolic blood pressure need to be included in that? Should we be looking at mean arterial pressure? Uh, you know, or all three? You know, how they kind of differentiate between them in different studies? And then they also bring up a, an interesting point where he says, secondly, and I'm quoting here, secondly, arguments can be raised that in the definition nocturnal um, it should be substituted with sleeping. The process of blood pressure dipping is not likely to occur when a person does not sleep at night. Night shift workers exemplify this. During the first 24-hour period of the night shift, a dipping pattern switches to a non-dipping pattern. Gradually, the non-dipping pattern changes back to a dipping pattern during the following days. The BP dip of these subjects is then seen during their daytime sleeping period. So point. it's almost like it's following 
your like like you said your sleep more so than just overall nocturnal right and so you'll see in multiple um instances with these studies we'll, we'll talk about they specify that it's diurnal individuals um to patients who do work a night shift or who are not sleeping in a normal circadian rhythm at nighttime are excluded so they don't even include those in, in the study so yeah i would not apply this to somebody who was working a night shift job, even though I, mean, I guess it could still make sense that they could still be a non dipper while they're sleeping during the day, but it's all so thrown off that I don't know that this would be easily generalizable to them at least. Yeah. And I've actually run into that issue in the clinic a few times where I've, I've discussed, you know, taking in one of the meds at bedtime and cause it was for a patient who's clearly was, was having some spikes in their blood pressure, at least late in the evening. Um, and then it was lower in the morning when they'd wake up or, or vice versa. I'm sorry. But, um, so we discussed switching the, the, to one of the, you know, the meds to bedtime dosing, but then it was like, well, I, I go to sleep at eight in the morning. And I'm like, hmm, well, that's probably, maybe that completely flips then yeah. how I would interpret that blood pressure. So it, it is interesting they bring that up because it does seem that it actually corrects itself when you, you're depending on whatever you start off with at baseline. You, if you do switch to a shift shift work, you can kind of like switch to a dipper to a non-dipper, right. you know, and then back, it regulates again. That just doesn't feel like very good for your body even still. Like I feel, I feel, yeah. for, I've, I've done some night shift rotations and I definitely feel for night shift folks because, um. It's tough. It takes a toll on your body for sure. So another thing that uh, the the article I was just referencing from the Netherlands does bring up is kind of the proposed mechanisms for blood pressure changes um, and why that could be potentially problematic and whatnot. Um, so the one thing they bring up is that um, the the couple factors that most likely sort of explain that normal. Um, nocturnal decline in blood pressure um, would be inactivity and be the fact that you are sleeping. Um, but uh, they say that, you know, so we could kind of attribute then daytime inactivity and poor sleep quality um, contribute to a decrease in that decline that you normally would have. Um, it's basically like causing them to become a non-dipper um, is one thing to, it is a possibility. Um, and then for instance, this has been suggested that subjects with a more pronounced risk of cardiovascular events may be more likely to be more inactive during the day and therefore are also more prone to be diagnosed as non-dippers. Mm. So that does actually kind of make sense. I think it's important to point out that we, even though they hypothesize some of those things, we don't have a clear understanding as to why some people don't dip. Right. We also don't have a clear understanding of the prevalence of dippers. We don't know how many people that this even would affect. Yeah, because it changes depending on the study. And it's, on, and it's also not re reproducible. Either. Right. It's not It's not necessarily reproducible. It could just be a one-off thing. I, you know, you, you could be having a bad dream. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Your heart rate's going to be up. Um, so sometimes it's not reproducible. Um, the Mapex study, I think, they said that 50%, I, I hope I'm not misquoting this, but I'm pretty sure I saw that 50% um, in, in their study they classified as non-dippers. I don't really think the the general population, 50% of us are, are non-dippers. So I think that's very interesting. And the, the Netherlands author also brings up how common autonomic dysfunction is when um, you have a patient with a non-dipping blood pressure profile. And uh, even in some cases, nocturnal, what they would classify as nocturnal hypertension. Um, so autonomic dysfunction tends to be an issue. And they kind of say that it's because of the impairment of that sympathetic nervous system, you get an excess volume of, of blood. Um, it's pulled in the lower part of the body while assuming the upright position, like kind of during the day. Um, and then the, the kidneys retain fluid um, 
or yeah, retain fluid retention during the day, which is related to low renal perfusion pressure. Um, and then assuming a horizontal position, uh, the pooled blood is uh, remobilized, causing an increase in stroke volume and cardiac output and hence blood pressure. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting too. And, and also can't be counteracted by the bare reflex um, or bare reflex due to impaired autonomic function in the first place. So it's like your body already has this, you know, issues going on and then it also can't correct itself with its normal sympathetic processes. Right. So that could definitely be a reason why somebody would not dip. You also see a lot of patients with like obstructive sleep apnea, things like that, that tend to have that same, same profile. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Increased concentration of circulating catecholamines and things of that nature. Yep. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, associated conditions. So uh, like I said, autonomic dysfunction, they also chronic kidney damage, um, renal transplant, cardiac transplant, um, diabetic neuropathy has been shown, um, to cause issues. Um, there's hypercortisolism, um, ac- you know, acromegaly, hyperthyroidism, hyperparathyroidism. So there's lots of different things that can lead to this, uh, type of situation where it's almost like disease induced mm-hmm. non, non dipping profile. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Look at comorbidities. So anyways, that's, uh, kind of what got everyone excited about this whole idea of, you know, do we need to dose medications, you know, for those non dipping patients or do we need to have everyone undergo, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which is not going to be feasible. And, you know, it'd be great if we could, but if, if that was, if we don't have that and we're just going off of, you know, our best guess as far as they're a dipper, non-dipper, the idea came about of like, Hey, do we need to sort of dose one of these medications? Proactively cover everybody for non-dipping and have some in the morning, some in the evening. And that way we're covering regardless of what they are. Right. So I think we'll talk about the time trial first and kind of go in depth on that. And then we'll compare it to what we have known previously or have thought previously with the Hygia in the Mapex. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, let's go. So, like I said, this is the treatment in morning versus evening study. came out a few months ago, um, I guess about three months from the time that we're releasing this. So, relatively recent, but not hot off the presses. Um, It's, of course, looking at whether patients can take their blood pressure medications um, in the morning or evening and what effect that's going to have on outcomes. So, the it was randomized it was parallel but it was open label so the patients of course knew that they were taking all their blood pressure medications in the morning or the evening and vice versa and that might have been a switch from what they were doing before so it was open to the patients it was also open to the um uh, creators of the study the only thing they were blinded to was the randomization process when they were split in between their different um treatment groups which I guess it, w- it would be a difficult thing to blind the patients to whether they are having, or the, the um, creators of the study, whether they're having the morning dose or the evening dose. I guess one way to do it would be to have them take, say, active pills in the morning and placebos in the evening and vice versa. But then you run into the issue of them having to take now a, maybe a right. once daily med now, twice daily, and adherence issues and all that sort of thing. Um, so that just kind of opens up a whole another can of worms. So it's difficult to make this this blinded, but it's not. And it kind of, um, that's similar to the other studies that we'll talk about. It's not uncommon. Um, so these were all hypertensive patients. Um, the evening dose uh, would be timed between 8 p.m. and midnight. So that's what they consider the evening dose. Uh, the morning dose would be 6 to 10 a.m. Um, there were 21,000 enrollees. It was a pretty sizable study. The duration of follow-up was five years. Um, this was a UK study. So anytime you see randomization 
or hospitalization spelled out, you'll see an S instead of a Z if you look closely. Um, it started in 2011. I was a little confused by the timeline. There was a five-year follow-up. It started in 2011. They said it ended in 2018, but the um, the follow-up itself ended in 2021. And don't just maybe I just haven't wrapped my mind around what all that means. But um, so it was it was done over the last decade. But they said that there was a five-year follow-up. The mean patient age was 65 years, which is a little bit older than what we'll see in the other studies we talk about. Um, so you would actually anticipate that they would see maybe a higher difference in um, cardiovascular risk there, or maybe not, but just note that they're a little bit older. Pretty even between males and females, about 43% female. Uh, about 14% of the patients were diabetic, um, but 90, uh, let me see, 90% were Caucasian. Uh, and you'll see that mirrored in um, the other studies as well. So this was done in the UK, and then the Hygia and the MAPEC studies were both done by the same group out of Spain, so um, primarily Caucasian there as well. Um, otherwise, um, that's pretty much the main thing for um, the study design and the enrollment. Did you have anything on that? No, no. I mean, that's, uh, one, I would definitely like, I mean, it's going to be hard in a European trial i mean really any trial i mean but even in the u.s we have the same exact problem where you have almost all caucasian patients enrolled but um you know i, I think it's uh, i'd like to see it with obviously more races included and then the 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 one thing that we, we were kind of talking about this off air but one thing that's kind of interesting with the setup of the study is how they if someone were, they took your baseline medications but then they just pushed all of them to evening dosing or all of them to the morning. Right. So I, I, that's kind of a weird, I guess it kind of defeats the whole idea of like, if you don't know if the person's a dipper or a non-dipper, then you can't really optimize right. the blood pressure, you know, lowering. And that's different than the, the MAPEC and Hygia, which we'll get into it. But the general recommendation we would give based on Hygia, for instance, is take at least one of your blood pressure medications at night, because that's the way that they set it up. Um, they said, one at one or more at least one medication moved to bedtime so the others could be still be in the morning in the most recent time trial it was like mike said all of them in the evening or all of them in the morning which well, i'll talk about in the results why some of it was kind of predictable but it's like i don't know i don't i don't really feel like these are apples to apples exactly because that does make a significant difference the only caveat they gave was if you of course had to take a diuretic at bedtime not ideal uh, and so if Nocturia became an issue, they permitted that those individuals could move it down to an early evening dosing, which I think they specified as being around 6 p.m. And if that was still a problem, then they could move that individual medication to the morning, but then all the other ones remained at bedtime. I meant to mention that 13% of the patients had previous um, cardiovascular disease. Um, and as far as how they reported the findings, it was all done with an online questionnaire. So uh, periodically, I think it was like one month and three months or something like that, but periodically they had to go online and submit an online questionnaire with a whole host of questions. Um, they didn't just look at the primary outcomes of cardiovascular events that we're going to talk about. There were all sorts of safety outcomes um, that they were answering questions about. There were all sorts of sleep quality outcomes that they were answering questions about. Um, a subsect of them um, had ambulatory blood pressure monitoring um, and submitted those either if they had a home blood pressure cuff they would submit their home blood pressures some of them had like 48 hour ambulatory blood pressure readings but that was not everybody um, so they have some information there and I'll, we'll talk about it in the results but um, not everybody 
submitted that. And, and as far as like this sleep quality and I kind of going back to what that one uh, author was talking about with, you know, the, with when you when you talk about nocturnal hyper uh, increases in blood pressure versus um, you know having a non dipping profile when you actually are sleeping versus just the fact that it's at nighttime, I, I feel like the way of like a self reported, which I mean it's, it's I don't know how else you would do this, but a self reported quality of sleep. Like if somebody asked me my sleep quality, I'd probably say good. Mm-hmm. You know what I, I would say? What seventy nine percent. I track it on an app. Do you really? Yeah. It's, oh, it, it, cool. It, it, well, it reads the quality of my sleep based on like sound. But anyways, it, I've tracked it over like the last six years. So I have this whole graph. So what does 79% mean? It, it means like, I think the way that they calculate it is how much time that I spend asleep versus how much time I'm actually in the bed. Mm. I don't think that that's totally like 100% because I really feel like I sleep more than 79% of the time yeah. that I'm laying in bed. Anyways, but they it can you know it compares it to like other readings from other countries and stuff. And the average in the U.S. is like 79 percent. So you're right on average. Right on average. I'm slight. I'm slightly above depending on the month. But. Just want to point that out. Just yeah, just want to point that out. <laughs> yeah. So, but but I mean, like outside of an app, which I mean, again, you'd have to have everyone using the same way of quantifying that. But I mean, that can or or even like just under reporting you know, the amount of sleep. I have a lot of patients that will say, oh yeah, yeah, I sleep eight hours. Yeah. Like that's a good, I mean, do, a lot you, of like, sleep. do you really like, to, you know, a lot of people don't. And so I think that, uh, having, cause, cause we also know that sleep deprivation, we've seen that in studies can, can raise your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, even in one night of sleep deprivation, they did some small study where they took like five or six guys and, um, put them in a sleep lab and basically forced, um, sleep deprivation. And, uh, that's paid me pretty good for that. And so I, I imagine they could just like hook you up to your regular day to day life. You just get to hang out and <laughs> just hang out with Mike, and you'll see what's the. It was it was pretty like. funny because I I skimmed the article quickly, <laughs> but it was basically talking about that uh, ways of keeping them up. They were in like a low light room and and whatnot, but they could watch videos on an iPad or device thing that they gave them, or they could talk to the other participants. There's only like five of them in there, mm-hmm. and then if they started acting drowsy, there was somebody watching them, which that job must be the worst you not only are you tired as well but you have to watch these people staying awake and uh <laughs> but if, if somebody started getting drowsy the person would come over the like the you know the intercom if you will and be like and call their name out just like call oh what oh, sorry <laughs> just you're not gonna you. get your hundred bucks that's like that's like um me with my kid you know we have the monitor in the bedroom and it has a microphone on it so you can yeah yeah pin on it and be like, the same thing nathan i am your father kind of thing yeah well, um you're not wrong but sometimes i don't like to do it a lot because otherwise he'll just like get obsessed with talking to the camera but uh-huh. uh, you know if he's messing around or doing something he's not supposed to you can be like nathan do not climb on the <laughs> do not climb on the crib stop do not do not chew on the crib like a beaver that's funny we'll never be able to resell our crib because there are bite marks all around really oh yeah that's hilarious the whole thing Nah, the, uh, but I mean, you know, that's, I feel like that's a huge issue with a lot of these studies is the sleep sure. you know, aspect, but, sure. um, you know, anyways, that's, um, me and my wife were watching some silly game show. I think it was called awake, but you had to, the, the it's like five contestants competing for a million dollars and they, they had to stay awake for 24 hours and then they all competed on a lack of sleep. And hmm. I was actually thinking of you, I was like, Mike would crush this. Maybe we'll say. I don't know. I've never, uh, never done a never, never competition, done a competition after afterwards. Just treated patients. It's usually just me. <laughs> so <laughs> not a lot of comparable data. Well, it's after the after the sleep deprivation. Yeah, that they compete. No, that's what I mean. But like the next day, like I don't have anywhere to compare myself. The next because to me, I like, eh, did fine. Right. 
high five. High five. But uh, yeah, so yes, yeah, so that was the basically um, the the time trial. Sh- the conclusion was that there was no difference, right. and that's kind of what the authors were getting it because the primary outcome they were looking at was did you say that's already the composite no um primary outcome was the composite cardiovascular um death or hospitalization for non-fatal mi non-fatal stroke um and was no it was not different statistically different the evening dose um and uh in morning didn't really seem to show much of a difference at all it didn't was, show a difference so- i was really hoping the secondary outcomes would save it right unfortunately Nothing there either. No. And so um, they actually only needed, so there are 20,000 participants. They needed like 631 events, I think, to meet their 80% power. And it took them a long time to do that. And they actually, that was why in 2021 they ended the follow-up because that was when they finally met power and got to that 631 events. So of the 20,000, there were 3.4% of the patients had an event of the primary outcome in the evening dose group. 3.7% 3.7% in the morning dose. So if you were somebody who liked to say these things, technically it did trend better in the patients who took them all in the evening, but the, uh, it, it was not statistically significant. Um, and then like Mike said, in the second, in the secondary outcomes, um, looking at stroke in particular, um, 1.2% in the evening dose had a stroke, 1.3 for morning dose, um, not statistically significant. The one thing that was statistically significant were um, falls. So this is more of a safety outcome. Um, 21.1% for the evening dose versus 22.2 for the morning dose reported a fall. So you could make an argument that the individuals who took the um, doses in the evening had less falls, which kind of goes against some of the right. concerns That's we were weird. talking about before. Was it statistically significant? It was. So that okay. was, it was hmm. P value was 0.048. So that was um, interesting because um, that kind of goes against the nocturnal hypotension right that theory. we were kind of concerned theory and and yeah so who knows it could have been incidental but it was statistically significant so um i did want to mention that so the again the the big weird thing is all the blood pressure medications at night or all of them in the morning but they didn't say clearly um what the patients were taking um, throughout kind of the meat of the study it didn't specify like even drug class, um, but specifically what individual medications or uh, didn't break down, you know, for the patients who had events while well, they were on these medications, the patients who didn't have events, they were on these medications. It was just blood pressure medicine. So if you go into the supplemental appendix, you can find the percentages of patients who were on a specific class of blood pressure medications. And I'll give that to you, but they still didn't break it down into which individual medications, which we've talked about mm-hmm. on many occasions. Um, how that can matter. We just did a review of, you know, the thiazide diuretics and why we like certain ones over others uh, as far as endapamide goes. They didn't break that down. So um, 47% of patients were on ACEs. Um, and we've kind of talked, and we'll talk a little more about it, but we talked about the um, half-life of lisinopril in particular and ACE inhibitors and why we kind of favor twice-a-day dosing for those things. Um, they didn't reference anything related to that. Um, were on calcium channel blockers, 25% were on ARBs, 20%-ish were on thiazide diuretics or thiazide likes, Um, 9% were on beta blockers, 5% on alpha um, adrenoceptor blockers, the um, alpha blockade, and then there were uh, two 
percent and three percent on other diuretics and other blood pressure medications. So Wait, mostly ACEs and calcium channel blockers, but a smattering of other things. And did they go? Did they actually in the supplement? I didn't look um, through that part in particular, but did uh, the did they report on who was on combo therapy versus monotherapy? Or because that's the other thing that nothing. I would be interested about. Like it, and. I don't think that would be very difficult information to get or even to display personally. Yeah. So yeah, I'd want to know if um, they were only on analysis. They were only on one medication taking at night and no other medications. They were on four medications that they were taking at night. All of them at night. All of them at night versus what we would have done if there were three in the morning and one at bedtime. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That is weird. So I just want to make sure I didn't miss that. I also thought it was because they also have, uh, when they say other diuretics, you know, I mean, I'm assuming they're throwing in the aldosterone antagonist in there as well, which there's, you know, almost 10% of patients using beta blockers, but 2% on, 2% aldosterone, on aldosterone antagonist. So it's like the, they're clearly not following unless they had other, you know, well, this was, so this started in 2011. Yeah. Right. So it went through 2018 still back then. I mean, that was still not That's like true. blood, like, um, beta blockers would have been first line. But patients could have had other comorbidities. Mm-hmm. They didn't really talk about it. Could have yeah. had heart failure and whatnot, which still we would see aldosterone antagonists. Um, they just didn't give much yeah. clarity on those things. Yeah, it was yeah. just it was just a, a grouped bunch of blood pressure medications, either at morning or at bedtime. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, I would like to see a little more detail there. Yeah, me too. But um, you know, the, again, it gave at least it gave us some kind of, I guess, more to, to discuss when it comes to this topic, because for a while, we've only had the two previous studies that showed any kind of, like, you know, benefit, which were the MAPEC and IGA, like Cole had mentioned, and they're both done by the exact same group out of Spain. So it's like, that's, a, and we'll get into some of the controversies behind that as well, but um, I am glad that we at least we have some data available. But Yeah. Um, so I did want to give a little more info so they they did also secondarily break down um hospitalizations for non-fatal mi hospitalizations for non-fatal stroke all-cause mortality um none of which were statistically significant they also looked at other um safety outcomes we mentioned sleep but they also talked about dizziness or lightheadedness no difference um upset stomach indigestion, muscle aches, random things like that with no difference. So what's your, just looking at this with maybe without, well, now that we're going to talk about MAPEC and Hygieo, what's your general takeaway from this? Like, what's your feeling about it? So I think I would feel, it makes me feel better about not being as focused on separately. See, I mean, the, the, but the whole, then that brings up the whole issue with they didn't dose some in the morning, some in the evening versus all in the morning. You know, I wish they would have had like almost like a third group where yeah. they separate them out to compare because, um, and had some in the morning and some in the evening because like, I feel like it, it, it in a way, like, cause the, the, the big debate rather is, is to kind of think about it as like, okay, if we are switching some in the morning, some at night that could affect adherence. You right. know, anytime you're switching to twice a day, dose exactly. versus so once the, a day. specifically nighttime is when people tend to be less adherent. Is that yeah. Nighttime dose? yeah. And so, uh, you know, anytime you're adding another dose to, you know, anybody's regimen, it's going to decrease, you know, adherence most likely. So my, the, the debate is always in my head, okay, this theoretical, 
or at least, you know, somewhat supported idea of getting better outcomes with, with separating them out, is that going to then be offset by the lack, potential lack of adherence? And, right. you know, that's where it gets tricky. Right. So I feel like this at least gives us a little bit more, it gives me a little bit more of an idea, you know, of, I don't need to worry about it as much as I right. maybe did in the past. Um, I think I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I think I agree. That's my, my takeaway. I, I still don't think that this says there is no benefit to do it the way that we've kind of been recommending, which is do at least one at bedtime, mm-hmm. but the rest are fine in the morning or whatever, or and we'll talk more specifically maybe at the end about splitting less set of doses or whatever it is, and maybe doing MLOP in the morning, X, Y, Z about, um, you know, um, half-life and things. But it does make me at least feel better that if I feel like there's going to be an adherence issue with getting some of them at bedtime or splitting it to twice a day, then, you know, it's probably okay just to have them in the morning. But it just, it doesn't address that because it doesn't address having blood pressure medications being twice a day or or having some in the morning, some at bedtime. It's, that frustrates me. I also would like to see, like, patients specifically who maybe have, like, resistant hypertension. Mm-hmm. Specific, because that, I mean, that's looking more so at outcomes overall right. and the outcome of blood pressure lowering itself. But I wonder if that would altered things at all as well if they kind of separated like you know patients that are on multiple medications because they have resistant hypertension would this be more of a prevalent thing right the other the other side of the coin though is is i feel like the other you know thing this study showed is is that there wasn't a harm necessarily from dosing them at least if you dose them all together at nighttime right so that's interesting yeah if if it's one of those things where if you are still thinking like well there's some discrepancies in the studies there's this that and the other the, you know the limitations blah 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 you could still feel good about if you know that's a patient that's going to adhere to you know morning dosing and nighttime dosing of certain meds then just do it that way you know right. you can do it that way without having to worry about causing harm especially since there wasn't an increased risk in adverse events at night right um, at least in the time study at least in this one yes. so, so. I, I think either way i mean i don't think it necessarily pushes everything they made it sound like this was like i know the end all be all of like and that's how they set it up at the beginning because they were like we have these other studies that say taking you know blood pressure medications at bedtime is way better and then they were like but it's controversial there's these issues with it and so we're going to set out to kind of prove whether they're right or wrong but then they set up their study differently. Yeah, that is not weird. to say that the Maypec and Hygieo were set up perfectly, but like fundamentally, they set it up differently with how they were doing the dosing. Yeah. So it's just like it's difficult to compare. But so it's somewhat insightful. It's just not groundbreaking. So yeah. if you want to get into more detail on Hygieo and Maypec, yeah, kind yeah. of set, we'll, helps set the stage for why we are saying these things. Yeah, we'll just um, and and I guess this is a good point too. Well, since it's kind of fitting with the study we just talked about, but. For those of you who are still with us, the password is going to the be password. is going to be time BP in all capital letters. So time BP that'll get you access to the post activity test on freec.com. T I M E B B P as in, in boy, P as in Paul, as I yep. would say. Or blood pressure, if you were. Ah, if ah, you were think, you say yeah, it that's where I came up with it. I get it now. Very tricky. Yeah. So but, if you need a reminder, we're about at the what 35, 36, 37 minute mark somewhere like around that. there. So so yeah. The I can't see the clock from here, but <laughs> close enough. But um, yeah, so the the Maypeg trial um, was one that it was done. You know, the t- 2010. It was done in Spain. It's it's basically uh, a study that was much smaller than the other two that we were going to be talking about, or IGA, and then in time. But um, Maypeg was 2,156 per, uh, participants, and they basically uh, showed that if you dose at least one medication, because those those patients were considered to be 
resistant hypertension because they had to be taking at least three or more. Mm-hmm. So I guess not quite by our definition, but um, three or more medications, you had to dose at least one of them at bedtime. And so you could do some in the morning and one in the evening or all of them. And they didn't really specify that you, the way you had to do it, but at least one had to be in, in the evening. Um, and they reported um, very um, substantial reduction in substantial <laughs> major reduction. cardiovascular events. Uh, so much so that it actually kind of sparked up some controversy as far as, you know, the how likely this would be because it was much more significant uh, of you know risk reduction compared to what we would typically see in like placebo controlled trials and whatnot so that one of the arguments against maypec initially was that uh, where where are we getting these kind of like drops in risk um, or reductions in risk from any other study that's looking at this kind of thing why would dosing one medication night like lead to this kind of a you know noticeable change in, in cardiovascular risk uh, overall. And it doesn't seem like they have a great answer for that. And some of the issues with like randomization and, and things like that definitely um, were called into question. It's a single you know research group. Um, and especially since they were involved in both studies, that's also yeah. another thing. It's like, ugh. so they were involved in, it's the same group doing MAPEC and Hygieia. It was one single center study in Spain looking at these, um, patient population and while 2000 patients is a fair number when it comes to blood pressure it's relatively small um they reported like i said before that at baseline 50 percent of their patients were non-dippers so maybe let's say that the outcomes that they found were legit it could be that they just happened to group in a lot of non-dipping patients for whatever reason that they they had a lot that i don't think is personally i mean i don't really have a lot to back this up i just doubt that the general population there's 50 percent of us that are non-dippers yeah i don't think that's ever been i've seen i have seen like like 10 to like 40 percent which 40 seems pretty um pretty uh, aggressive as well but still the, the, that that seemed i can get my head around that versus like saying 50 percent of the patients are all non-dippers right um and i and i think like i said i think this the idea is kind of based around this this whole non-dipper versus dipper thing but it's like if you don't have that sort of like set in stone you'd almost have to have like a like a study where you have like just dippers in one like you know one control group versus the you know, the whatever active arm versus the, the non-dippers and, and then people compare who are those verifiably to, yeah. non-dipping. It's like that, that, that to me seems like the only way you could really really get, get good and like at least deeper and like, at least like, if you're going to use that as your general, you know, thesis to, to start off with and like why we even need to look at this right. stuff. So if we accept that, that that is reasonable, I mean, to me, say a patient is on their third blood pressure medication and they're still having trouble controlling it. You know, maybe a 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure to evaluate whether they are a non-dipper is not unreasonable. Um, Though I guess, obviously, dosing one of them at bedtime is a way easier thing to do than getting a 48-hour, you know, ambulatory blood pressure. I don't know. But to me, it would be an interesting thing to know. If I I could establish that, like, yes, this person is a non-dipper, then maybe I'm not only just doing one at bedtime. Maybe I do consider doing like splitting them evenly between bedtime or just evaluating them a little bit differently if they're resistant and I can establish that they're a non-dipper. But this study kind of makes, they, they're trying to make it easy. They're trying to say, yeah, just do at least one of them at bedtime. You're probably going to cover all these non-dippers and you're going to get fantastic outcomes. So their main results, um, I don't know that we if we've specifically mentioned it. So Mike mentioned a 61% reduction in cardiovascular events. Um, 
they report the events in thousand patient years. Um, so if you're looking at, um, which I hate, I know that's so annoying to, to convert. So if you're looking at, um, a reduction of the primary composite of all cause mortality and cardiovascular events, that's a number needed to treat of 63 over a year to prevent event, which to prevent an event, which is pretty dang good. If you're just saying, take one of them at night, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and not adding additional medication or anything. Um, if you, if you just look at all cause mortality, it was 488 over a year, but still 488 patients to prevent someone from dying is not totally unreasonable. If you're saying just take a medication, one of these medications at at bedtime and like, you know, there's a, you're going to have a lower risk of death. So yeah, if you're just looking at this study, things look pretty positive for putting one of them at bedtime. Yeah. But again, they didn't look at all of them at bedtime or all of them in the morning. They just said at least one. So that's why it's frustratingly difficult to compare to the time study. Yeah. So then fast forward 10 years, Hygieia comes around, yes. and it's the same group, uh, as we've mentioned. And still a lot of Spain, still a lot of Caucasian folks, most, almost exclusively. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say almost pretty much exclusively. And um, the, the Hygieia study included a lot more patients. Um, so they basically had um, over, a little over 19,000 uh, patients and um overall and it, w- it was a multi-center controlled trial they call it a, a probe um so prospective randomized open label blinded endpoint um and basically patients were uh f- included if they had um you know the ability to adhere to a routine of daytime activity and nighttime sleep um you know they had a diagnosis of hypertension according to the 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure uh, monitoring criteria and they had to have a baseline awake system blood pressure um, average of uh, 135 or more systolic awake diastolic of uh, 85 or more and then a sleeps uh, yeah a, a sleep systolic of 120 or more and diastolic of 70 or more and so it almost sounds like the patients that to be included you had to have you were a dipper right based on the so it's like almost like they didn't include they didn't want uh, is that how they did that that's that's what uh the inclusion criteria, anyway. Very interesting. Um, exclusion, pregnancy, uh, history of alcoholism, narcotic addiction, night or rotating shift work, which that would take the place of that, um, or that concern that we had brought up earlier. Um, issues with heart failure, life-threatening arrhythmias, atrial fib, um, kidney failure, things like that. Um, and then they had to do basically, uh, uh, they had to be able to follow up within a year minimum. Um, they, they had a lot of the same baseline characteristics as far as patients that were obese, included 43.5% of patients and that were considered to be obese. Um, previous cardiovascular den- events only uh, made up of 10% of the study population. Um, hypertension treatment prior to enrollment, 56.9%, um, which means that they had patients that were just now getting started on treatment you know, so they weren't as all... part of the uh, study. So, they, right. you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they – in some other things as well. But I think um, – so to the excluding um, the dippers. So I, I guess if you're thinking about maybe the specification of a dipper, it's it falls at least 10%. Yeah, that's true. And then the inclusive criteria, they said while you're asleep, um, systolic's above 120, but maybe a baseline is already high. And well, so they, they could still be dipping, just not dipping below 120. But they said uh, baseline awake would be 135 right. minimum or higher. Oh, I see. So it would have, and to, so be it would have to be. Well, lower. the reason I say that is because looking at these baseline characteristics, they say non-dippers, 49.5%. 
Oh. So I guess, I don't know. They, That's they, a really weird... This uh, study wasn't the one who said that whole 10% criteria yeah, yeah, yeah. No. or anything. Um, so wh- however they, they distinguished it, they said 50% were of their patients included were non-diverse, 50% were dippers. Again... Maybe the maybe the general population does have a fifty percent non dip rate, or maybe these these this is multi center. This isn't just the single group, but they had still a very large portion of patients who they established to be non dippers. Yeah, that's a that's a really weird discrepancy, though. I I, mean, I'm not fully that. understanding that. So, um, all right, cool. So we're all confused now. Um, but uh, basically, the intervention is they could be prescribed either ARB ACE uh, inhibitor, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, or and or a diuretic, um, and randomized to take the medication at bedtime or upon awakening. Um, the medications were dosed according to current practice guidelines. And so, I do like that they didn't include alpha blockers, um, which we don't really use nowadays in hypertension management um, or any of the other like vasodilators and things like that. Though we did um, see those in time. Yeah. About 10% of patients had alpha blockers. So that um, that I did like about this study. And what they were doing is, again, looking for a primary outcome, um, compositive cardiovascular death, uh, MI, coronary revascularization, heart failure, stroke. And um, in this study, they did meet a statistically significant uh outcome for that primary um, composite. And if you look at the hazard ratio, it was 0.55. So you get like almost a 50% reduction um, by dosing one of the medications at bedtime. So that was, or dosing the, the, the bedtime treatment, I should say, because I think they dosed all their medications at bedtime as well, um, or all in the morning or all in the evening. But, uh, you know, the, that's a humongous drop when we didn't see Huge. any difference whatsoever in time. Right. That's a little odd so that's huge yeah and so um this study in particular like we kind of referenced the controversy around it that we probably haven't really talked deeply about before but there was a lot of critiques of this study um regarding a lot of it but primarily i think the uh, the methodology and the patient population so there, there was one um uh, article i was reading that was that was saying that if you were looking at the clinicaltrials.gov information, it was saying that, you know, originally the um, the amount of patients that were going to enroll was 5,000, and then you look like a month later and it's now increased to 10,000, and then it increased to 15,000. And the question was like, why are they doing that? You know, you'd have to imagine that it's because they're possibly because they're they're uh, doing some interesting statistical evaluation. So it is important to note that... Um, their statistical analysis was actually reviewed by the European Society of Cardiology Journal Ethics Committee, and they did not find any evidence of misconduct, despite um, a robust amount of critiques around that. So that's important. Yeah. Um, but apparently there's independent source data that needs verification. Um, but that was definitely something that was critiqued. And then they bring up a, even like whether the, the patients were truly randomized um, or, you know, the allocation was concealed. Um, they, they talk about, uh, this is a, an article called um, Controversies in Hypertension, Lowering Nighttime Blood Pressure with Bedtime Dosing of Antihypertensive Medications. Um, it was published in, uh, in Hypertension and basically lays out some of the issues. So they actually looked for um, like a some sort of details on the, the process of randomization that was done for Hygieia, which were not, you know, reported on. Um, so that's a little strange. Um, they also talk about uh, 
that the study protocol discontinuation, loss to follow up and withdrawal of consent were not reported. Um, so in response to a letter by the investigators of time, the 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 time trial, um, the IG investigators reported that 84 patients total, uh, which is 0.4% of the state population, were lost to follow-up based on patients with less than one-year follow-up, um, but it was inconsistent with the true meaning of loss of follow-up and would uh, be uncharacteristically low for a long-term trial, um, even with uh, exquisite conduct. So they, they used all had trial as a comparison and um, talk about that uh, the... Um, the loss, the loss of follow-up was 2.7 to 3 over a mean of 4.9 years. Um, they also mentioned that um, insufficient information was provided um, about medication adherence. So the authors reported that only 2.8% to 2.9% of patients in each group had poor adherence. Um, however, it was based on self-reporting using a questionnaire that is uh, well known to severely underestimate rates of non-adherence compared with objective methods. So for a comparison, one meta-analysis found that 31% of patients uh, had poor adherence to their antihypertensive medications based primarily on pharmacy dispensing records, um, while adherence might uh, indeed be higher in a clinical trial than an all-had or something like that. Um, you know, 12.8% of participants uh, had discontinued study drug by one year and an additional 10.1% um, at the end of the five-year follow-up from, from all-had. So it's just basically going through this, showing how much different the numbers look um, overall. So um, it's it's really interesting um, that... Uh, yeah, I mean, they've never been able to reproduce this. They've seen where in some cases you can get some, um, you know, maybe changes in blood pressure low, like the, num the number, you know, as far as systolic blood pressure reported, like from certain medications, like you mentioned, Hope um, was talking about dosing the ramipril at night. Um, but then other studies have looked at this kind of timing thing, like with, there was one with Valsartan, for example, and didn't show any sort of... Um, differences whether you dose it in the evening or, or night because one of the i've always thought of like the okay well the ras system tends to be more physiologically active at night so mm -hmm. if you give an ace or an arb um but the one of the active comparators in that uh valsartan trial was lisinopril and they didn't really see a difference between groups there either mm -hmm. so you know whether you use an ace or arb um it didn't seem to make a big difference as far as the overall effect even if the rest system is more active. Right. Plus the other thing that they brought up was kind of interesting was talking about like, how would we explain very, like if you have a medication who let's say has a long half-life like amlodipine and you have, you know, this, once you've reached steady state for a couple of weeks, how would you explain timing that medication having a different effect regardless of being in right. a dip or not dip? You Is that steady probably state more wouldn't. than 24 hour half-life? Why would it matter when you take it? Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting thought as well. Right. And, you know, I think it needs to be, you know, looked in further. Right. Um, a couple other critiques. One is that there was such marked benefit. If there was such marked benefit, why did they allow the comparator group to continue not taking their medications at bedtime? If they thought that it could cause harm, right? So yeah. It's almost an ethical issue. Like why didn't they stop it early? Because mm -hmm. of there, if you saw a benefit like this in many other trials, like a cancer trial, you would say, we're stopping this because it's so significant yeah. that we need to get everybody else taking right. this at bedtime. Um, Accomplished stopped, what, three, three uh, years early? Right. And, and because they saw, because you know you're going to continue, those endpoints are going to move further and further away. Right. So. Yeah. Why not stop it? Right. So interesting. Um, also, there were excessive treatment effects 
including about a 40% reduction in non-cardiovascular-related mortality. So, like, not related to any of the cardiovascular endpoints, there were still decreases in mortality for some of the patients, which that, so I, I didn't look, I didn't find this on my own. This is another article that's critiquing it in that way. Um, but that's interesting. So just in general, some people would look at this and say, this just doesn't really fit with what we've seen before. Yeah. And the other, I guess the, since you're just, cause we're kind of running out of time, I guess the other thing to consider is one, these studies were not, none of them were set up the same, like we've talked about, but also two, we're also kind of leaving on the table the the data that should, for example, with lisinopril, like you kind of br- briefly mentioned, you know, we, we've seen where you get a much more significant blood pressure reduction when you dose lisinopril on its half-life. So you're dosing it twice a day versus mm-hmm. once a day. So 20 milligrams twice a day is, I, it was almost 10 millimeters mercury uh, difference in systolic blood pressure when you dose lisinopril twice a day instead of once. And so to me, I would, if I'm just looking at overall blood pressure lowering, the whole idea of like, well, I'm trying to just dose one at night, you know, and the others in the morning to account for them being a dipper, non-dipper, whatever, it almost goes out the window. If if they're willing to take it twice a day, well, I'm going right. to dose the ACE inhibitor twice a day anyway, so they're going to be taking it morning and evening regardless. Right. So I, that's where I always start with. That's my strategy if I'm trying to optimize medication. Because usually, you know, with us being pharmacists, by the time patients get to us, we're, they've already tried a couple of different things. And so when I'm trying to manage pharmacotherapy regimen, like I would think of optimizing first, and the ACE or ARB is usually what I go for, especially right. if it's like the Valsartan, like in that study. Like they, they looked at once a day in the morning or once a day in the evening. But all the heart failure studies and things like that that looked at Velsartan was all twice a day anyway. Yep. So it's like, you know, I don't even know if they have an outcome study with Velsartan at once a day dosing. Right. So I, that to me, like, kind of is where I get frustrated with why are we even, like, having this debate if we know it's better. Right. You know, and if it's a patient where you're worried about adherence, then then do once a day combo or whatever. Exactly. I think that's where I fall too, where this this isn't this isn't practice changing. It wouldn't be practice changing for me because that would be kind of where I would fall. If the patient is open to taking something in the evening, then just split the dose of lisinopril like it's evidence-based or whatever it is, the ARB, if, you, if you're going to do that twice a day. Then you get this whole deal covered um, as far as the dippers and non-dippers. The risks of taking you know, a blood pressure medication at bedtime, though there are some theoretical risks, seems to not be that significant. Even time showed that. Um, so that, I mean, that seems like what I would do and, and, but at least you can feel more comfortable if a patient is just not going to do that. They're not going to take a medication twice a day. You can say, okay, well, since, you know, it's not for sure that you're going to have this fantastic benefit that Maypec or Hygieia showed, it's reasonable just to keep these two, these in the morning. That's, that's whatever. Um, but if, if they're open to it, then we have, I think it would be the most evidence-based to split the ACE dose. Mm -hmm. Then you cover your bases here with Hygieia and Maypec and you cover your bases with how you should dose the base or the lysinopril specifically. Yeah, and the other thing to mention too is there's actually a Canadian um, study that's happening right now. Uh, it's a, the Canadian uh, bedtime versus morning use of antihypertensives for cardiovascular risk reduction, um, also known as the BEDMED trial. Probably one of the coolest names ever. Way to go, our Canadian fr- friends. <laughs> um, I, li- I like that bed med. But, uh, and there's one guy that was talking about just upcoming studies uh, and some review article I found. And uh, he says the, the bed med trial, um, once those results are in, we should be able to 
put to bed a great deal. And I was like, oh, yeah, gross. But anyways, um, so that study is, is uh, expected to be, at least on clinicaltrials.gov, is expected to finish up in uh, December of 2023 this year. So I did want to mention that the way that I even came across this study was a Medscape article where um, the author did not come to the necessarily the conclusions that we came to, which is kind of a middle-of-the-road of conclusion. Um, his was pretty much in line with what time found, which is like, it doesn't matter when yeah. you dose them. But I think that's why it's important to, instead of just taking a, a review article at its face to look a little deeper and uh, you might come up with something different than what yeah, we found. For sure. Yeah. And and I think there's, like you said, there's a bunch of different variables that also need to be, ultimately what it comes down to is patient specific. Right. You know, if you have a patient that's, you've done ambulatory blood pressure monitoring on, you see that they're not, if you have all these different things, maybe they're on shift work, whatever. Right. Like there may be scenarios where that would push you and it wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't apply the the population data that we've seen. Right. And then we also have the, the Caucasian versus <laughs> yeah. other races that we just, we don't have information on because right. it was purely, purely yeah, Caucasian. Exactly. These trials, so. so anyways, that's our, uh, our thoughts on it. Um, I, I hope that uh, was somewhat helpful. Um, and it'd be interesting to see what this, this bed med study comes up with. It'd be, it would really be crazy if that shows another completely different. <laughs> It turns out if you dose them in the morning, you're actually way more, way more beneficial. We'll have a whole other, like, yeah, oh, you, need, no. you need to do all of them in the bedtime yeah. and then at least one in the morning. If you dose that's all of them at lunch, benefit. that's where <laughs> you get, right. yeah. So. You need to wake up at 3 a.m. and take all your blood pressure. Disrupt your sleep. But yes, we'll see how things change, but hopefully that was helpful. And, uh, you know, like I said, if you are a member of freece.com, make sure you go to the website and uh, claim your, your free CE credit um, after you complete the post-activity test for this this exam, and uh, or this episode, I should say, this exam. And uh, and so thanks to them for partnering with us again, and um, we, we've really enjoyed working with them. So definitely encourage you to check them out if you're not already a, a member. And uh, also want to give a shout out to our, our main sponsor of the podcast, Pearls. Um, lots of cool stuff coming up with uh, them in 2023. So make sure you check out uh, their app and their they have a desktop um, uh, application as well now that you can download. Um, if you go to pearls.com, so that's P-Y-R-L-S.com slash coreconsultrx, you can put your email in and you'll get access to a free account, um, the, the free version of the app. And you'll also get a bunch of uh, PDF files you can download for um, like diabetes pharmacotherapy regimens uh, algorithms and whatnot and um, some good stuff there to kind of sample the 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 app and then if you want to convert from there and do the pro version um, definitely encourage you to check it out um, but it, it, they're adding new drugs every month and um, I talked I had a meeting with them uh, early last week and they had some really cool stuff coming out this this coming year so um check them out the big thanks to them and uh, if you want more structured podcast or more more structured like lecture style instead of our podcast um, where we get off on tangents and whatnot check out patreon.com slash core consult rx and uh lots of new lectures are planned to go up on there working through a bunch of psych lectures and things that are going to be uploaded uh, over this next month so check those out and um if you have any questions for cole me or uh, aj who's we've had a hard time getting him scheduled on, uh, you know, to, to 
when we're actually recording the episode. Um, it's okay, though. We love him anyway, and hopefully we'll get him back on a, a reasonable schedule here soon so uh, that I'm not the one trying to work the cameras, which I gave up on halfway through the, the episode. But, uh, yeah, so um, we'll, if you have any questions for any of us, you can reach us at the emails in the show notes um, or any of the social media uh, platforms. Um, you can send us a message. Um, text messaging is also works. That, that'll be in the show notes as well. And, um, you know, just overall, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Have a good night.